And I want you to read with me from Mark chapter 2. And I want to talk to you tonight on the subject, how to get a hard case saved. How to get a hard sinner saved. And here's a tremendous illustration of this in the Bible. Now listen to me. I'm sure that there's scores of people here tonight that have a loved one that's lost. A lady said this morning, excuse me, husband, dear folks, we're here for this service tonight. A lady said, I have a mother who's lost, and I believe she said six brothers and sisters. I, I thought, what a challenge that is. Um, a mother who's lost, I've never known what that was, to have a lost mother. But a mother that's lost and six brothers and sisters without Christ and on their way to heaven. And the lady this morning, Mrs. Richmond, said, pray that I will be able to win my mother, my six brothers and sisters to the Lord. You know, that's a great challenge for him. And I, I'm sure there's scores of people here tonight that have people uh, in your family that are related to you that are lost. I've had people say to me that get saved and come to know the Lord in a real way. That they talk to their loved ones. Loved ones say, don't talk to me anymore about this. I want to hear this. You know, there are hard, hard cases. Not just stands to reason. Some are harder to win than others. You, you give me a little eight or nine or ten-year-old boy girl, and I believe I can take the Bible, and 99 times out of 100 can lead them to the Lord. Uh, they, they're young in years. Their hearts are more tender. They're not skilled in sin. And they can be led to the Lord. But you take folks when they get older, they get, the fewer they are who come to know the Lord. And here's a case in the Bible, a difficult case, who came to know the Lord as a personal Savior. Will you prayerfully look with me in the Word of God to Mark chapter 2. And again he, that's Jesus, and again he entered into Capernaum. And after some days, and it was noise that he was in the house. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them, no, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. When they'd broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. 
And immediately he arose and took up the bed and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. I'd like to point out two or three tremendous statements in the scriptures that I've read to you tonight as a starting place for our message. In verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, you know, you ought to make a note of that. I've taken a red pencil and drawn a little uh, oblong circle around that expression. Their faith, not his. Not the man born of four, not the man who did not know the Lord. But the Bible said when Jesus saw their faith, that is the four men who brought him, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Then you read in verse 11, Jesus said, Arise and take up thy bed and go thy way into thy house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion before. Getting a hard case saved. Now this took place in the city of Capernaum. It's been my privilege, doesn't make me any better, but it doesn't make me any worse either. But it's been my privilege to be at Capernaum a good many, many times in my life. I think more than 20 times I've had the privilege to visit the ancient site of the city of Capernaum. It was a beautiful little village, you can tell even from the ruins that are there tonight. It was a beautiful little village, hard by the waters of the Sea of Galilee at the north end. It is where Simon Peter lived, and the floor of Simon Peter's house has in recent years been discovered and uncovered. It is there at, at Capernaum that this miracle took place. You know, Capernaum was a place of privilege in the Bible. Capernaum was the hometown of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. He was brought up in the city of Nazareth. But the Bible says in Matthew 4.13, And leaving Nazareth, he went to Capernaum, and he dwelled there. So I'm talking to you about a great miracle that took place in the hometown of Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you like to live in the same town with Jesus? This is where Jesus lived. So it was a place of great privilege. It was a place of great position. Many miracles took place there. I guess because so much of the ministry of Jesus was in Capernaum and surrounding areas. It was there that a centurion's servant was healed just at the word of God. It was at Capernaum that a fish was caught with a coin in its mouth to pay the taxes of Jesus and the disciples. It was at Capernaum where a demon-possessed man said even to the Lord Jesus, let us alone. We don't want to be disturbed, these demons said. Leave us alone and go your way. But a man was gloriously changed who was demon-possessed. It was at Capernaum that Peter's mother-in-law was healed. You read in this chapter that Jesus came to a house. Now the previous chapter would show us it was the house of Simon Peter. Jesus one time went to the house of 
Simon Peter, and Simon Peter's wife's mother was sick of a fever. You say, did Simon Peter's wife, uh, Simon Peter, have a wife? You better believe that he did. You better believe it. Now, some folks would have us to believe that Peter was never married. Now, if he was not married, he's the biggest fool I've ever read of in my life. Because Peter took unto himself a mother-in-law. And anybody take unto themselves a mother-in-law and not take unto themselves a wife is a fool and not capable of being a pope or an apostle or anything else. You better believe it. One day, Jesus was in that house. And here was this mother-in-law of Peter's wife. And she was ill and Jesus took her by the hand. And a great miracle took place, and she was restored. It was at Capernaum, nearby, where the Lord Jesus, one day, one night, came walking on the water and bid Peter to do the same, and he did. It was on the slopy, green, grassy hillsides near Capernaum, where 5,000 people, 5,000 men, besides women and children, were fed uh, at the greatest miracle Jesus ever wrought feeding thousands of people with the lunch of a little lion. So it was a place of great position. It was a place that suffered great judgment. You know, one day Jesus said to that city, Thou, Capernaum, though thou be exalted to heaven, thou shalt be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, Sodom would have repented and would not have been destroyed. This was a place of tremendous privilege because the Lord Jesus was there and worked many miracles there. You know, the more blessing you have, the more responsibility you have, the more truth you know, the more responsibility that you have, the more miracles of God you've seen take place, the more God will hold you accountable for that. Jesus held this little community accountable for his presence there for some three years off and on and for the many miracles that were performed there. But one day Jesus was in, no doubt, Simon Peter's house. And when the, when the news got around, Jesus the miracle worker, Jesus the Son of God, Jesus the great teacher is in the house. People began to fill the house until they filled it until there was no room for anyone else. They crowded the doors and filled the yards until no one could approach the home. But out yonder somewhere, there is a paralytic. There is a man who cannot walk. All of his life he'd been the object of pity. One day four men said, if we could just get our neighbor to Jesus. Jesus has done it before. Jesus has done miracles like this and, and more and many of them. And if we could just get our neighbor to Jesus, Jesus would know what to do with him. So four men took up this man and they brought him to Jesus and they got him saved. And I'm going to preach on how it, this all took place in a moment. But do you know tonight, Jesus majors in hard cases. Nicodemus would not have been easy. Here's a man who had all the religion in the world. He had so much religion, he had to indicate it by the garments that he wore. 
He had so much religion, he could say, Why, well, I fast twice a week. I pray three times a day. I give tithes of all I possess. He had as much religion as anyone could ever have. But religion doesn't save. And Nicodemus was lost. But the hardest person in the world to get to see their need of Christ is a religious person who already has religion. Nicodemus wasn't easy. I think of Jesus saving a thief on the cross, a dying thief, just few, a few moments out of eternity, and for him, a few moments out of hell. He turned to Jesus and said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And the Lord saved a thief on the cross. I'm saying to you, God majors in hard cases. And the Lord Jesus dealt with people that I think maybe even Christians said, why that person can never be saved. You think of Saul breathing out threatenings against the people of God and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Saul of Tarsus, who was instrumental in having God's people put to death and was instrumental in stoning Stephen until he died. Well, I'm sure that people must have said, that Jewish rabbi that hates God and hates Christians as much as he does will never be saved. But one day the Lord, who majors in hard cases, spoke to Saul on the Damascus road when he's on his way with letters in his pocket, names of Christians in Damascus to persecute and, and to put to death. The Lord spoke to him and unseated him from his horse on the Damascus road. Saul of Tarsus got saved. Don't you ever let the devil make you believe that God cannot save a difficult person and that the Lord cannot convert a difficult sinner. I have told in this church before of one of the greatest experiences I ever had in my life had to do with the conversion of a very difficult case. It was a man down in Canton, Ohio. I well remember as if it took place five minutes ago. When a man came to me at the close of a service where I was conducting a revival campaign, he said to me, Preacher, would you go and visit a man that needs to be saved? And I said, I'll be happy to. Even when this man walked away, he'd made arrangements to pick me up. A Christian worker said to me, Preacher, you're too busy. There have been scores of people who have gone to see this man, and this man who spoke to you has taken many preachers, visiting preachers, who've come here to this church to, pre to, to preach and to visit. And uh, so I said, I'm going. That man picked me up. I've told you, most of you, the story before. When we went out to a veteran's hospital, there was a man down the hallway, and uh, we were going down the hallway to this man's room. His first name was John. As we approached his room, a nurse came running out of that room in white uniform. And she came literally running out of it. And she said, if you're going to see John today, don't go. He's in a bad humor. He had thrown something at this nurse. This preacher that would, had taken me, this Christian man, I should say, walked right on in the room and I very bravely walked right on behind him as we approached the bed. Oh, I can see this man now. He was a veteran of World War I. 
His hair was gray. He was skin and bone. Eyes sunk deep down in their sockets. And he was literally tossing his head upon the bed and raving and taking the name of God in blasphemy. And this Christian man walked up to the bed. He said, I brought Brother Malone here to see you, John. And John let out an oath. He turned the air blue with his profanity. And we didn't get anywhere. Uh, John said, I'm going to ask Brother Malone to pray for you. Uh, he never closed his eyes. In fact, he never quit cursing. And in a moment, this Christian worker, crushed, discouraged now, after many visits, this Christian worker said, Come on, preacher, we will leave. And we walked out of that veteran's hospital. I was there to hold a revival. You know, a revival is where you want to get God's people revived. And where you want to see people saved. And I just stood over the bedside of a man that was lost and had been a failure in winning him to Christ. I went back to the motel where Ms. Malone and I were staying. And I told her the story. Many, many years ago, we got down on our knees in that motel room. And we prayed for John that the Spirit of God would speak to his heart and that the Lord would save him. I called a taxi. I had this taxi to drive me out to the veterans hospital again. I walked down that hall and found that room. And when I walked in that room, same, same results at the first. Man began to curse and take the name of the Lord in vain. I think a man is as far from heaven as a human soul could ever be. I walked up to his bed. He'd been given the Roman road and verses of Scripture many, many times. And I asked him a question. I said, have you ever known a Christian in your life? And he quieted. And he, through these deep, dark eyes sunk in their sockets, this man soon to die said, if I've ever known a Christian, it was my mother. I said, where is your mother? He said, my mother lived in West Virginia and I was born in West Virginia. I said, where is your mother? He was quiet for a second. And then he said, if there is a place called heaven, my mother went to heaven. I said, John, would you like to meet your mother in heaven? And those old wrinkled lips began to tremble and those deep sockets filled with tears. And there, in, in a less time than it takes to take, tell it, a man said, God, be merciful to be a sinner. Save me for Jesus' sake. And a man said, oh yes, I would like to meet my mother in heaven. Don't ever give up on somebody that needs to be saved. I'm saying to you, I'm talking to you tonight about a Savior who majors in hard cases and can save any sinner in all this world. Now here are four men. They looked at that paralytic who'd never been able to walk a step. Not only was physically disabled, but spiritually was lost and under the condemnation of God. They'd looked at him for years. You know, they could have done a number of things. They could have given up when they got to this home. I can just see them. They, he was born of four, the Bible says. Now, this kind of quartet I like. They, these four men, they brought this man that came. Here's the whole place surrounded. They can't even get in the house. 
They could have done one of two or three things. They could have given up. And you know, I think I've had the experience. I'm going to be honest with you. I think I've had the experience in my life of saying, well, I've done the best I could, and I can't do any more. And if this person is determined to go to hell, then they're going to have to go. I can't do any more. They might have said, we cannot do any more. Here's the crowd. The doors are packed. No one can get to the Lord, let alone four men carrying another man on a pallet. We can't get him to Jesus. You know what the Bible says? Be not weary in well-doing, for in due season you shall reap if you faint not. You ought to see some of the calling cards I've seen in this church. Those little three-by-five cards with an address on the front of them and on the back People call and give a date and give their initials or name. I've seen them filled up and make another one. Fill it up and make another one. Fill it up and make another one. And sometimes I've seen people come and bring those cards filled with names and visits and say, Thank God, finally, this person's been saved. They could have given up. They wouldn't give up. Oh, give me tonight some people who have lost loved ones but who will not give up who will never quit trying to win them to Jesus Christ. They could have done something else. They could have said, now, we're going to have to wait a while. This is not the time, not the time of harvest. But you know, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, work for the night is coming when no man can work. He said, I say unto you, say not there yet four months, and then cometh the harvest. But lift up your eyes and look on the fields for they're white already under harvest. That's what Jesus said. Oh, they could have said, we'll have to wait a while. But this is what they did. They acted immediately. You know, it was an urgent matter. And I want to tell you something. You're never going to win people to the Lord till it becomes an urgent matter with you. If it's not urgent with you, you're never going to succeed in getting people saved till it becomes, like Jude said, Pulling people out of the fire. Suppose you were a house, a home on fire, and you knew someone was in it you wanted to rescue. Would you say, well, I, I'm going to wait and think this over? No, no. You, you would say, if you're normal, I want to do everything I can and do it right now to get those people out of that fire. I followed four little white caskets at one time, where four brothers and sisters were burned to death in a home not too far from this church. And four brothers and sisters were buried at the same time, and I preached their funeral. There was one surviving brother had his arms all bandaged and uh, was burned. And one of these who was burned to death had gotten out, but remembered this boy was still in there, his brother. And he went back in to get him. But instead, he burned, and he was able to get his brother out and get him, his one brother saved. And all oh, you can imagine, four white boxes, four brothers and sisters, and here is one who died for this one with his arms all bandaged. He stood at the grave and wept, and he said, he, he lost his life trying to save mine. And he saved mine, but he lost his. And listen, this is an urgent matter. 
The Word of God says, pulling them out of the fire. You know, a lot of people want to talk Christianity and talk compassion and talk having a burden for souls and talk concern. But when it comes to doing something about it, they don't do anything about it. It's not urgent with them. Why, I talked to a man on the phone last night. I've been talking to him over 40 years. I've been to his home, been to his place of business. I've had it in my home. I've talked to him, I, I've, I'm going to say, hundreds of times. Hundreds of times. Hundreds of times. And last night again, he called me. He's a man of my age. And I've been over 40 years trying to do something with him and to trying to help him. I've had him to this church more than once. But I told him last night, you may think me unkind, but you don't know the whole story. I said to him, you know what? You've been saying these same things for more, for more than 40 years. All you're going to do is, is talk. I felt I ought to challenge him, ought to try to startle him. I said, you're just going to talk, that's all. You're not going to do anything. You've called me over and over and over and over. Said to me, I want to, I want to make things right with God. I want to get in that church. I've heard it, I've heard it, I guess a hundred times from the same lips. And I said, you're not going to do anything about it. Oh, it stunned him. That's what I wanted because I'd love to see him really right with God and on his way to heaven. And for over 40 years, I've been working and trying to get a man saved. I said, you're not going to do anything about it. You're just going to talk about it. And you know, a lot of Christians like that. A lot of Christians say, yeah, preacher, that's good. Preach on this soul winning business and how urgent it is and how important is the soul of a human being. But talk is all a lot of folks are going to do. I thank God for some people who do more than talk. Here were four men who picked him up and said we're going to get him to Jesus. Now I want you to see a picture here. I want you to see four things quickly. I want you to see a helpless one. You see, here's a man who cannot walk. He is a spiritual picture. He has no power to come to Jesus within himself. He is a man that is absolutely helpless as far as doing anything for himself. He needed someone else to help him. You know, I'm amazed at these people that call themselves Calvinistic and, and all this sort of thing. Uh, I'm amazed that people could ever delude themselves into believing that God doesn't use people to win people to the Lord. I don't know how anybody can take that Bible and read that Bible and say, I believe that Bible and turn around and say, if God is going to save someone, he'll save them without human help. That's not true. That's a lie of the devil. Oh, I remember when Jesus went to the pool of Bethesda and said to a man who had been trying to get into the waters when they were troubled and he'd never been able to make it. He said, wilt thou be made whole? He said, I have no man. When the waters are troubled, to put me into the pool. I need a man. I'm crippled. I can't get across these stones and get into those healing waters. I need a man. And let me tell you, sinners need a man. They need a woman. They need a human being. Who cares? Old David said one time in his life, I looked on my right hand and uh, no man would know me. I looked on my left hand. He said, no man cared for my soul. You know, we need some Christians tonight 
who are going to make people believe there's somebody who cares about their soul. These men recognized that this man was a helpless man. I preached last Wednesday night on the Ethiopian eunuch, and I reminded you, those of you who were here, that when Philip said to this man, had the Bible in his hands, he was reading from the book of Isaiah about Christ, the Savior, the Lamb of God, led as a lamb before her, Sarah's is dumb, so he opened not his mouth, reading it. And Philip said, do you understand what thou readest? And he said, how can I except some man should guide me? I want to tell you something. What God is doing in the matter of keeping people out of hell, he's doing it through people who've been saved and have been kept out of hell. God uses other people. Isn't it ridiculous to say God doesn't use people to help the, helping, uh, the helpless one? Uh, he, he used men to write the Bible. Bible's inspired, perfect, impeccable book. Every word of God is true. This is God's book. But he used 38 or 40 men, said, I want your mind and your tongue and your pen. And he spoke through them. Why, when the greatest miracle this world has ever known was about to take place, it was when the Lord of glory, the creator of all things, was to take upon his deity a human body and walk in it among men. When God was going to bring about the only virgin birth that's ever taken place in the history of the human race, he looked down and saw a little Jewish maiden and said, I want your body and I'm going to use your body for the Lord to come out of the battlements of heaven and take upon himself the garments of flesh and walk among men. Isn't it strange? God wouldn't write a Bible without using men. And God wouldn't even perform the miracle of the incarnation of Christ without using a woman. And then people sit around and say, oh no, God doesn't use people. Sinners know where the church is. They hear the gospel on the radio and see it on the television. They don't need me. They want to get saved, let them get saved. Listen, that's the devil's lie. Devil's been fooling you if you've been led to believe that. God needs some people tonight who will recognize a sinner as a helpless one. I never will forget going to church. And I want to tell you now, this, this is true. Monday night, and probably about this many people in a Monday night service, first Monday night of revival campaign, the dear preacher, bless his heart, I know him, still love him in spite of everything. But he said to me now, uh, you know, we don't, we don't pressure people here to be saved. He said, we don't ever go to anybody. We don't, we don't uh, uh, try to pull them. We don't pressure them. And he said, now that's the way we do it here. Well, that's not the way I, I've been doing it. And that's not the way I was taught. And that's not the way I was saved. Somebody put some pressure on this old boy and made me know I need to get right with God. And I needed a Savior. So I went ahead and preached, and when I asked the folks to bow their heads, I said, is anybody here lost tonight? I'd like for you to lift up your hand. I want to pray for you. And right down here on about the second seat, there sat a young woman, probably in her early 30s, fine, well-dressed young woman, and she lifted one hand, and with the other, she took her little handkerchief, and she began to dry the tears. And uh, back here in another part of the service, a man lifted his hand. And over here in, in the, another part of the, of the auditorium, another man lifted his hand. 
I wasn't trying to be mean, but I couldn't, I couldn't help but think here, three people have said by the uplifted hand, I want to be saved. I want to be saved. Nobody moved, moved a muscle. I just stepped down and didn't even get to the young lady. I reached out my hand and she reached out hers and took her by the hand. I brought her. She knelt at the altar. I went back over here where a man raised his hand in his 50s. And I said, a friend, you raised your hand. Would you like to be saved? He said, yes, I would. I'm a member of the Presbyterian Church. But he said, God showed me tonight I'm not a Christian. I've got, I have religion. I have a church, but I'm lost. Yet I want to be saved. And he came. And the same thing happened to three, three people in one service. All of them wanted to be saved. But they needed somebody to say, I'll go with you. I'll help you. I'm concerned. I'm interested. I know you're lost. And you need help. And I'll help you. And I want to tell you, that's what unsaved people need tonight. Here's a helpless one. Now watch something. But there in the next place, there are the helping ones. They're unnamed. Unnamed. The Bible doesn't tell us the name of four men. They brought this man to Jesus. Now, if you get four men together, if you just uh, at random take four men out of this church tonight, out of this, out of this service, just at random, take four men, you'd have four different kinds of people. You probably, uh, probably one of these talked with a little timid voice that he got neither from God nor his mother. And probably one of these might have said, I just don't believe we're going to make it. I'm sure there must have been one that said, Now, I never saw it done this way before in my life. But thank God there was one. There was one who said, We're going to get him to Jesus. Oh, the crowd was there. But here are the helping ones. They said, Now, at least one of them said, Let's go up these stairs, get up on the roof. At least we can do that. Stairs on the outside of the house leading up on the roof. Battlements around the roof the way they built the home. And up on the roof they go. And uh, at least one of them said, Now, let's tear a hole in this roof. I don't think there's any question but what somebody said. Now it's going to cost money to get this fixed. I know they did. If there was a board member anywhere around, I know he said it's going to cost money to fix this hole. But a man said, oh, but we got to get a, we have a man here. He's not only crippled, he's lost. He's going to hell. We got to get him to Jesus. So they begin whacking on the tile in that roof and they made, had to make a big hole. You can't let a paralytic on a, on a bed down through just a little hole like you'd make to fish through the ice. You understand that, don't you? They had to tear a big part of it off and they let him down. My right here is where I don't know where I'd want to be. I'd like to have been up there and listened to the four and looked at the man when they started letting him down. But I think I'd like to have been down there and looked up at those faces. And Jesus looked up and the Bible said, when he saw their faith, he said to the man sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Rise and take up thy bed and walk. Thank God there were four men wouldn't take no for an answer. They meant business about getting someone saved. I've named them. A young man one time years ago, and I was preaching on this, said, How do you figure uh, men that did such a great work, Bible doesn't give their names? I said, I'm going to name them. The Lord didn't, but I'm going to. I'm going to call one of them prayer. Because listen, 
You're never going to get anywhere in soul winning anything else without praying. I'm going to call one of them prayer. Do you know Paul said, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is, that's his kinsman, that they may be saved. I'm going to call one of them compassion. I'm going to call one of them compassion. Because unless a Christian has a tender heart, he's never going to win anybody to the Lord. Some of you don't care. Some of you, like a couple of you, back there in the back, you've been talking all the time I've been preaching. And one over here, you've been sound asleep most of the time. You don't care. You see, God sees it all. God sees it. And let me tell you, if you don't care, someday you'll meet God with their blood on your hands. And you'll be, you'll be an unhappy person when you stand before God. This Bible said, if we warn not the unrighteous man, then his blood will I require at your hands. I'm preaching to people tonight that unless they change, they're going to meet God with bloody hands. Bloody hands! The blood of the souls of men for whom Christ died. I'm going to call one of them determination. Hey, hey, there was some determination here, friends. Hey, there, there's at least one man in this quartet that said, no, there's nothing in this world going to keep us from getting this man to Jesus Christ. I'm going to call one of them faith. Yeah, it must have been at least one that said, Oh, I have faith in the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And I believe if I can get him to Christ, he'll be saved. Oh, what a wonderful thing. Four men. You know, that teaches me we need to cooperate. We need to work together to get people saved. The helping ones. Now watch it. There were the hindering ones. You always have them. I always have them when I'm preaching like I have here tonight. The devil always furnishes you with a few. You don't have to advertise and ask for them. They're always there. There were the hindering ones. The Bible said they couldn't get through the door for the press. The press means the crowd. They couldn't get through the door. There were people that hindered. The crowd hindered them. The circumstance hindered them. Religious leaders hindered them. The hair splitters hindered them. People that said, never saw it like this before, tried to hinder them. And Satan will hinder you every way in this world to keep you from talking to people about their soul. There were the hindering ones. I'm going to close. Thank God there was the helping there was one that saw this man and he said, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Take that bed. Four men brought you here on it. Take that bed and throw it over your shoulder and go on your way rejoicing. And thank God he did. I was in St. Petersburg, Florida years ago preaching. And I was, uh, had, had a phone call from a preacher and his wife who were in the same a motel where I was staying, I was preaching in a conference at the Calvary Baptist Church down in the St. Petersburg, Florida area. And uh, they asked me, would you come? We want to, want to talk with you. Would, could, would you mind coming into our room? We have some refreshments. A preacher I'd known many, many years. So I went to the room, we talked with him, and then the man said, now, you know, this is a soul winner's conference, and that's the reason you're here preaching. He said, uh, 
I'm going to leave when you leave, and uh, I'm going to go out and see if I can win somebody to the Lord. And I didn't know what all happened until that night when I went to the church to preach, and the place was packed full. But he went out that afternoon, and uh, he went to a filling station and filled his car with gasoline. He and his wife were to leave to drive back to the city in Florida uh, after the meeting that night. Filled his automobile with gasoline, and he said to the fellow operating the filling station, Are you a Christian? He said, No, I'm not. He said, uh, I sure ought to be. He said, The Lord's been good to me. I have several of these filling stations. And he said, uh, I own two Cadillacs sitting over there. He said, This young man here is my son. But he said, I'm not a Christian. And he said to my preacher friend, now the cars are coming, as you can see, I'm busy. I'm sorry I can't talk to you. Preacher did his best, and he had left him a track and talked to him as best he could, and the man went on about his work. Went to the service that night, and so helped me, I'm standing up there preaching, just getting started to preaching. And uh, I saw a man come in with this um, coveralls on, and grease on the coveralls. And I saw a young man, later found a 16-year-old son, came with him. I saw the ushers in the back talk to him, and, and then all of them began to look over the audience like this. And uh, then an usher said, pointed, and he pointed to the preacher, and he was sitting over here. They brought the, the man and his son down and arranged for them to sit where the preacher that had been there this afternoon. And he sat with them. When the invitation was given that night, people began to come. This preacher came with a man, well-to-do man, and a 16-year-old boy, the filling station operator and his son, and they came. And that, that man and his son were wonderfully saved. That man did something unusual. He just looked up at me uh, as we were coming to the close of the service, and he said, before the service is dismissed, can I say something? coveralls on grease all over them. I said, sure. This man's name was Mr. Harmer. And Mr. Harmer came up and his 16-year-old boy stood there wiping his tears. He'd just been saved. Mr. Harmer came up and I stepped aside. He stood here and he said, folks, a miracle took place. He said, I was at my work this afternoon and he said, this man came and talked to me about the Lord and said, I brushed him off. I told him I was busy and he left. He said, I forgot the name of the church, but I remembered the name of a man, he said, was preaching. So he said, I called all over St. Petersburg. And he said, I called this church, finally decided this is the church and called. And we found out the phone rang way back in the back end of the buildings where there's no secretary at this time. No office is open. But a man got up out of the service to go see about some of the facilities he's concerned about, the heating, the, the lighting or something. And when he went back, he heard a phone ringing. And he kept going till he got to it and he picked it up. And a man said, my name is Harmer. Is this the Calvary Baptist Church where a man by the name of Malone is preaching? And the man said, yes, Mr. Harmer, this is church. He said, I'll be there as soon as I can get there. So he came. 
They showed him the seat, and he and his son were saved. He came up and he stood and he said, uh, Friends, you know, I've had everything. He said, I have a number of filling stations. I've made lots of money. I have a wonderful family. I thought I was happy till a man told me I was lost and without Christ. And he said, a few minutes after that man left, it hit me. What have I done? Well, I've turned away a man that wanted to keep me and my family out of hell. And he said, I said to my boy, son, we're going to find that church and find that preacher if it's the last thing we ever do. He said, we spent a lot of the afternoon trying to call and find the place. He said, thank God we found it. To the book of Psalms. And I'm going to read from Psalm 62. And then I'm going to go back and read from just a verse from Psalm 61. But I want you to turn to the book of Psalms. Psalm 62. Now, we've been talking to you uh, for a number of weeks, uh, I think kind of in a special way, about the Lord Jesus Christ and what He, what he means to us, <coughs> what He means to me. And we want to continue that. We departed from it last Sunday. But I want to continue to talk for a few weeks, God willing. You know, I don't, I don't have anything else to preach but Jesus. There isn't anything else. When you preach, preach the Bible as it is, you preach Jesus Christ. And with all my heart, I want to preach Jesus, just present Jesus Christ. I have no program, no program that takes precedence over Jesus Christ. I have no ax to grind as a preacher. I have no issue to, to preach against uh, above Jesus Christ. Nothing. I just want with all my heart and soul, with the ability that God has given me, limited though it may be, I want with all my soul to present Jesus Christ. I'd like when I stand before the Lord, as all of us will, I would like to be able to stand before the Lord and know that I've done my best to present Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners, to people. And when we preach the Bible as it is, you do preach Jesus Christ. And I want to preach today on the subject, Jesus is my rock. Now, this is not a far-fetched matter. It is a Bible subject, and it is a Bible description of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will read some verses that have to do with that. Psalm 62, will you give your prayerful attention to the reading of the Word of God? Now, you know this. The book of Psalms is a soul book. If, there's, if any book in the Bible could be called a soul book, maybe more than another, the book of Psalms is. It is the book of emotion. It is the book where people, and no one person wrote all the Psalms, but they, where people laid bare their soul. It is the soul book. And I want you to think about it as we read from Psalm 62, where David bears his soul in speaking about his Lord. Truly my soul waiteth upon God. From him cometh my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. How long will you imagine mischief against a man? You shall be slain, all of you, as a bowing wall shall you be, 
and as a tottering fence. They only consult to cast him down from his excellency. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. Selah. My soul wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in Him at all times, ye people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Now then, if you'll just turn back to Psalm 61, I want to read just three or four verses and then call one verse to your attention as a starting place. Hear my cry, O God. Attend unto my prayer. From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For thou hast been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. I will trust in the covert of thy wings, Selah. And I want you to notice the expression in verse 2 as the beginning this morning. The psalmist David prayed and cried unto the Lord. And he said these words, Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Now there is no question, there is not a shadow of a doubt about what, the, the, what David is talking about. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. If you were to turn to the book of Deuteronomy and to the 32nd chapter sometime and read that chapter and underscore the word rock in that chapter, you would underscore it several times. You would find also that it begins with a capital letter because it's not talking actually of a rock or stone as you and I know it, but it is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is called our rock. Now, if there's any doubt in your mind about it, you could turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul deals with the subject of the smitten rock. And he said, we did all drink of that spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. I think it's only been three or four days ago till someone suggested a name to me, the name of a man. And when this man's name was mentioned to me, I made this statement not thinking of the sermon that I would be preaching this morning. I've made it many times. I said, that man is like a rock. And when we use that expression, we're saying, here's a person that's unmovable. Here's a person not easily swayed. Here's a person that is strong. Here's a person that's a source of strength to other people when we refer to them as a rock. Now, the Lord Jesus is called a rock often in the Scripture. I think of this man, David, when he conquered all of his enemies, and he is now on the throne of the people of God, and he's coming near the close of his 40-year reign as king over God's people. And the Lord gave David a song, beautiful song, 
You could read it in Second Samuel chapter 22. And he begins that song by saying, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. He said, The Lord has delivered me out of the hand of all of my enemies, and the Lord is my rock. And I want to speak to you today for a few minutes on the subject, God, Christ, is our rock. Now, first of all, in the Scripture, He is a smitten rock. One of the greatest episodes, so to speak, in the Old Testament is when God led the children of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. He delivered them by blood and set them on their way to the land of promise. They had not been in the journey very long until they came to a place where there was no water, a place called Horeb. And God said to Moses, I will stand before you there upon the rock. That is a great and mighty rock in Horeb. God said to Moses, Smite the rock, and water shall come, and these people shall have their thirst quenched. So Moses stands, and with that shepherd's rod he had used to bring plagues on the land of Egypt, he smote the rock, and water came out, and the people of God were saved at Horeb by the smitten rock. You see, that's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the smitten rock. He is the rock that God smote to bring the water of eternal life to those who trust and believe in Him. We sing that beautiful song, Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in Thee. Let the water and the blood from Thy ribbon side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Rock of ages. Reverend Augustus M. Toplady wrote that song. He wrote Rock of Ages, and he wrote it in the midst of a storm, or at least God put it in his heart. This English preacher, on his road one day, when the, on the road one day in England, when the storm came, he felt it was a, to be a fierce storm. He went from the road and found a huge rock jutting up out of the ground. And back under that rock, August top lady found shelter till the storm passed over and the storm was gone and while he was there and the storm raging all around God gave him the song rock of ages cleft for me and I want to say to you this morning no matter who you may be you can mark it down the Lord Jesus Christ is the smitten rock for you. I thank God I can look every man and every woman in this world in the face and say to them, Christ died for you and Christ was smitten for you. When Moses smote the rock, water came. Now that water was free. So is salvation from the smitten rock. Jesus said to the woman at the well, the water that I shall give unto thee. See, salvation is free. You can't buy it. A lot of folks make a mistake in trying to buy it. You can't earn it. Many make the mistake of trying to earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't shape your life up so you'll deserve 
this water from the smitten rock. It is absolutely free. This water is not only free, but thank God from the smitten rock, it is an abundant supply. There's enough for everyone. Some years ago, I had the privilege to be in that part of the world, and I was taken by a man who lived there and shown a rock with a crevice in it and a stream of water coming from it. And it is the traditional place, it is said, where Moses smote the rock, and the water is still running from that rock this very moment while you're sitting here in this church. You see, it's an abundant supply. God has enough grace and enough love and enough, enough forgiveness for everybody in the whole world. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. When the rock was smitten, it was free and it was abundant. And you know, it was near, right there. Man didn't have to hunt it. He didn't ever have to cry, can he find it? It was right there, right there, where the thirst was, the water was. And that's the same with Christ, the smitten rock this morning. He is here, thank God. I believe with all of my heart that the Lord Jesus Christ is in this assembly today. He said, where two or three are gathered together, there I will be in the midst of them. And Jesus Christ, the smitten rock, is in this service this morning. He stands before every single person in this room, the smitten rock. He's not only the smitten rock in the Bible, he is the life-giving rock. We read in Numbers chapter 20, and verse 8, where God spoke to Moses and said, Take the rod and gather the symbol together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak unto the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth his water. I noticed that some years ago. God didn't say the rock shall give forth its water, but the rock shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring it forth bring forth water out of the rock. You see, he is the life-giving rock. There's no telling this morning how many people in the Old Testament were saved because of the refuge of a rock. You read of great soldiers such as David and Jonathan and others who stood on a rock and fought their enemies till complete victory came. And Christ is such a life-giving rock this morning. God said, speak to the rock. A later time, when uh, uh, smite the rock. A later time, when God's people needed water, God said to Moses, speak to the rock. That's when Moses, angry with the people, smote the rock again. And God was angry with Moses. God said to Moses, I told you to speak to the rock. You smote it. It's already been smitten once at Horeb. Jesus is never crucified but one time. The last time this unconverted world saw the Lord Jesus Christ. He was hanging on a cross, robed in blood and crowned with thorns. And one time, the Bible says, once in the end of the age hath he appeared to put away sin 
by the sacrifice of himself. So he is the life-giving rock. You know, Jesus is the foundation rock. Oh, how he taught people that he was the foundation rock. He said to the disciples, Upon this rock I will build my church. That's why I believe that there's no power on earth that can extinguish the church. Upon this rock that is himself, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I believe in what we call the perpetuity of the church. I believe the church is as eternal as the Son of God himself because he is the head and we are the body. And as long as the head lives, the church shall live. This church could never be destroyed. It's just like one of the graduates of, graduates of this school had the building, church building burned. And someone said, I heard your church burned down. He said, no, you can't burn a church down. A building burned down. You see, this church is founded upon the rock, Christ Jesus. Upon this rock, I'll build my church. That's why Paul said, Other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, even Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus told about people. He said, Some folks are like the man that built his house upon the sand. The winds came, and the rains came, and the storm came. And listen, the storm will come to your life. Just as sure as you're in this house this morning, the storm will come to every person's life. He said a man built his house upon the sand, and when the storm came, the fall, the house fell, and great was the fall thereof because it was built on sinking sand. But he said a man built his house upon the rock, and the storms came, and the house stood firm because it was built upon the rock, Christ Jesus, upon a solid foundation. So you see, men build their lives two ways, on the sinking sands of this earthly system or upon Jesus Christ, the blessed Son of God. He who builds his life on Christ shall never fall because it's built upon a rock. You know, you could have a foundation without a house, but you can't have a house that will stand without a foundation. And no man's life will stand unless it's built upon the rock, Christ Jesus. He is the foundation rock. The Bible shows that Jesus is the rejected rock. You see, unto them which be disobedient the stone, which the builders disallowed, the same as made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling and rock of offense, Peter preached in the very beginning of the book of Acts. He said, this is the stone which you've rejected, you've set aside. I do not know whether it be true or not, but it is said, in the building of the temple, there was an illustration of this. It is said that in the building of the temple, there were the stones that were brought for the building of the temple and put in their respective places. There was this odd-shaped stone 
that was brought and no one knew at the time where it was supposed to go it seemed and the weeds grew around it and time went on and the temple is near in completion and someone said where does this stone go and it was determined tradition tells us that they said this is the cornerstone and the cornerstone is station you know Jesus is the pupil until you know him as a friend and as a savior and people reject the son of God Jesus is the red stone to a dear lady uh, this week on a hospital bed with about as deep a physical problem as a young mother could have and I asked her are you a Christian and she said yes recently she said my sister has been telling me I need Christ in my life and I need to accept him and I need him and she said I've been reading the Bible and she said I think I can say to you yes I am a Christian I said well then I want to say something to you uh, lady the Lord Jesus Christ is going to put you on the other side of this moment of sorrow and the Lord Jesus Christ is going to put you on the other side of this great time of sorrow in your life. And I want to tell you, my friend, if you reject Jesus Christ, you've rejected the greatest friend that a person could ever have. I have some friends, I believe, that shed blood for me. But I want to tell you, I have no friend like Jesus. No friend that sticketh closer than a brother like Jesus. No friend who's always there. No friend who never forsakes and never leaves. No friend who never slumbers and sleeps but Jesus. And he who rejects Jesus Christ has rejected the greatest friend a man has ever had. I took him as a friend more than 48 years ago. And he and I have been walking together. I've been walking with him. And every day, I discover more of his majesty, more of his greatness, more of his love, more of his strength, more of his patience, and more of his forgiveness. Oh, my friend, if you're rejecting Jesus Christ, you're rejecting the greatest friend that a man could ever have. You know, not only this, but I must, in order to be true to the Bible, close this brief message by maybe what sounds like an unpleasant thought to some. Jesus is a crushing rock. He is a crushing stone. Uh, uh, he is the stone upon which you can build. Or he is the stone which will destroy you. That's what the Bible says. The book of Daniel says, For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold. Jesus said, The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. Whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. You can't dodge Jesus. You can't, you can't be neutral about Jesus. You can't leave Jesus out of your life, really. You're going to have to face him. You will face him now, 
as a friend and Savior are facing someday as the crushing stone. Why, the book of Revelation tells us that after the Lord has come and judgment has come in, has set in, that men shall cry to the rocks and the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of the Lamb that sitteth upon the throne. They shall literally cry, O rocks and mountains, bury us to hide us from the face of the Lamb of God. How much, how much more wonderful than to cry to the rocks and the mountains, hide us. How much more wonderful to do what David did. Cry out. He said, I will cry it to the ends of the earth. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. You know, if you have a sorrow, come to the rock. If you have sin, come to the rock. If you have a battle with Satan, come to the rock. If you need safety, come to the rock. If you need shelter, come to the rock. For Christ is the rock of ages. And he wants to be the rock and foundation in your life and mine. Shall we bow our heads for prayer? Every head bowed and every eye closed. And I want us to to pray for in just a moment. Thank God for Jesus. I tell you, there's, there's no, no way to describe how precious Jesus is to the child of God that's believed in Him and trusted Him. And I want you this morning to think about Jesus for a minute. Is He, is he my rock of refuge or will He be my crushing stone in the day of judgment? What does Jesus mean to you this morning? Oh, let the Lord speak to your heart. I thank God that as a child of God, not because I'm good or perfect, but because I've believed and trusted in the Lord Jesus, I thank God I can say, He is my rock and my refuge. 